0: morning. Uh, The scripture this morning comes from Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 25. If you would like to follow along, you can find it printed on page 6 of your bulletin. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before, coming to the, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we
1: are no longer under a guardian. Buenos dias. La lectura de hoy viene de Gálatas 3.15 al 25. Hermanos, voy a ponerles un ejemplo. Aún en el caso de un pacto humano, nadie pone, puede anularlo ni añadirle nada una vez que haya sido ratificado. Ahora bien, las promesas se le hicieron a Abraham y a su descendencia. La Escritura no dice, y a los descendientes, como refiriéndose a muchos, sino y a tu descendencia, dando a entender uno solo, que es Cristo. Lo que quiero decir es esto, la ley que vino 430 años después no anula el pacto que Dios había ratificado previamente. De haber, sido, de haber sido así, quedaría sin efecto la promesa. Si la herencia se basa en la ley, ya no se basa en la promesa, pero Dios se la concedió gratuitamente a Abraham mediante una promesa. Entonces, ¿cuál era el propósito de la ley? Fue añadida por causa de las transgresiones hasta que viniera la descendencia a la cual se hizo la promesa. La ley se promulgó por medio de ángeles, por conducto de un mediador. Ahora bien, no hace falta mediador si hay una sola parte y sin embargo Dios es uno solo. Si, si esto es así, ¿estará la ley en contra de las promesas de, las promesas de Dios? De ninguna manera. Si hubiera promulgado una ley capaz de dar vida, entonces sí que la justicia se basaría en la ley. Pero la Escritura declara que todo el mundo es prisionero del pecado, para que mediante la fe en Jesucristo, lo prometido se les conceda a los que creen. Antes de venir esta fe, la ley nos tenía presos, encerrados, hasta que la fe se revelara. Así que la ley vino a ser nuestro guía encargado de conducirnos a Cristo I I'm going to
2: acknowledge um, the reading of today's passage in Spanish by Omer, but also the song that we sang earlier, uh, You Are Good, that we sang also in Spanish, Eres Fiel, and both of those are things that we do from time to time just as an expression of our commitment to be and to grow, as a cross-cultural community, but especially today, we want to bring those pieces together uh, with, a, with a timely poignance, given that it is Hispanic Heritage Month uh, being celebrated in this city and across the country as well. And so especially those of you, uh, brothers and sisters who are of uh, Hispanic or Latino descent, we honor you, uh, we love you, and uh, also our neighbors whom we long to be in community with, We long to send our love and our grace and our welcome always. So happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Let's say a word of prayer as we continue our study of the book of Galatians. Been moving through this for several weeks. We need God's help though, so let's pray. God, we thank you for this time that we can come to your word. We acknowledge our weakness. We need your help. We need to hear things maybe that we don't want to hear. Uh, Sometimes that's good for us, always when it's your voice that we hear. Uh, We pray that you would give us life through your word. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would even give us a spiritual appetite for him, food that we can eat, uh, drink that we can drink. We need you, Jesus. Come, send your Holy Spirit. Use me in all my weakness and limitation. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently read a story in the news about how scientists evidently are noticing that the wreckage of the Titanic lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean is rapidly disintegrating. It's not going to be there for too much longer. And of course, that news got me thinking about that movie that I know you all love, Titanic, about the famous ocean liner that tragically sunk in 1912 and uh, the movie did so well and one of the compelling themes about that movie was the theme of promise. We see that especially at the end of the movie after the boat goes under and people are scattered in the icy water and the main characters, Jack and Rose, are there bobbing, floating on in the water. And Jack turns to Rose knowing that this isn't looking good and the situation isn't going to bode well for him at least, and he said, Rose, promise me, promise me that you will survive, that you'll never give up no matter what. And of course, as we know as the movie plays out, Rose lived on to the age of 105, I believe. You say, why? Well, by the end of the movie, it makes it pretty clear. Why did she live so long? Because of the promise that she had made. Hanging on, not giving up, no matter what. A promise is a powerful thing. And maybe I'm also thinking about the Titanic because it's my wedding anniversary today. And so I think Paula and I this afternoon might need to go out into our back deck on the edge and hold out our arms together. (laughs) My heart must go on. (laughs) All right. Speaking of heart, at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is the notion of promise. It's actually one of the things that most distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion in the world and every other system of belief. What defines your relationship with God is not the promises that you make to him, but rather the promises that God makes to you. It's a big difference. What defines your relationship with God in the gospel is not the promises that you make and keep to God, but rather the promises that God makes and keeps to you. This is what the Apostle Paul is arguing, presenting, explaining in today's passage. Seven times, seven times the word promise is used. It's a main theme. Paul is still explaining in this letter to the Galatian Christians the central message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for salvation, which they had forgotten, You see, because some false teachers had entered into the church and had started to lead the young Christians astray. They were teaching that the way to get right with God, the way to get accepted by God, was by obeying the Old Testament law. That's another word that you see a lot in this passage here. Law, it's mentioned nine times in these short verses. The law, of course, refers to the commands of God that were given to God's people through Moses. They included moral commands, like do not murder or love your neighbor. They also uh, included ceremonial commands, like how to perform purification rites, how to make sacrifices. Uh, Here's what you can eat, here's what you can't eat. Obey these commands and God will accept you, the false teachers were teaching. And Paul corrects them. In fact, he actually condemns them because it struck right at the heart of the true teaching of the gospel. He corrects them, he corrects us throughout this letter. No, no, no. God's acceptance is a gift you receive, not a work you achieve. And this is good news for sinners. He says it again in this passage, and this time using the language of promise. What we're going to see in this passage, just two quick themes that we'll run through. First of all, the priority of the promise. And secondly, the lockup of the law. The priority of the promise, the lockup of the law. Let's look at the promise first. One of the things that these false teachers were arguing Was that Paul and his teaching about grace, that God loves you just as a gift, that that was just Paul bringing in something new, an an innovation, uh, something that wasn't always taught in the Bible, and therefore it was illegitimate, not true. Our way, they were saying, is old, ancient, proven, True. We need to go back to Moses and his law, they were saying. And here's what Paul's response was. You haven't actually gone back far enough. There's something even older than God's law commands, and that's God's promised grace. Let me trace with you Paul's argument, just because there's a lot of words and stuff going on here that might have just sort of made your mind shut down a second ago when it was being read. Let's walk through Paul's argument and his logic really quickly. First of all, Paul lays down a principle in verse 15. He says, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So what does that mean? You can't change the terms of a legal agreement or a contract after the fact. We understand that. He notes that we know this even from what he calls examples from everyday life. So like when you sign an apartment lease. Maybe some of you have done that recently. Or maybe some of you are stuck in one that you don't like. Well, you can't just go to your landlord and say, Hey, I found this place over here uh, that's a little bit cheaper and has a little bit more room. And so I'm just going to move tomorrow. See you. You can't say that because of the terms originally that you had agreed to. Or maybe you say things are getting tight, so I'm just going to start paying you eh, about $100 less than I had agreed to. That's going to be okay, right? Now you can't change the terms of the original agreement. If only we can do that. But no, once it's been established, can't get out of it, can't change it. That's the nature, Paul says, of covenants and contracts. And so what he does then, he applies that principle to our understanding of Scripture and the gospel. And this is how he reminds us that God started by making promises to Abraham. He comes to Abraham, who at the time was just an ordinary idol worshiper in Mesopotamia. Didn't know God, didn't care for God, wasn't looking for him. God shows up and says, you, I love you. I'm going to bless you. Obviously, not because you deserve it. Obviously, not because you've earned it but simply because of an overflow of my kindness, my favor. I'm going to make a family out of you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to set my covenant promises upon you. And so Paul reminds us of that in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, his descendants, and that took place in and around 2000 BC, a long time ago. Then Paul points out, That the law was given to Abraham's descendants through Moses, but here's the key, but way, way later than the promise was given to Abraham. After the fact, centuries later, in fact. And therefore, I hope you're tracking with me here, based upon the apartment lease principle, if we can call it that, the commands of the law that God gave to Moses can't just suddenly obliterate the promises of grace that he had already made to Abraham and his family far, far before then. God can't suddenly change the terms of the deal after the fact. Your landlord can't, you can't, God can't. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. God's unconditional promise of grace was made first, Paul says. That came first in his dealings with sinful humanity. Grace came first, so grace still stands. Verse 18 says this, for if the inheritance depends on the law, our obedience to God's commands, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Beloved, everything about the Christian life through and through, And if you're looking into the Christian life, faith, understand that everything about Christianity through and through is grounded in promise. The God of grace is a God of unconditional promise. Robert Trail, an old Irish minister from the 1800s years ago, wrote this, the Christian's God is a promising God. I therefore call you to inquire and determine before God and your consciences whether you know God under this name. Do you know God as a promising God? And he notes this with great insight, I think. The acquaintance that most Christians have with God is with him as a commanding God. It is impossible that God can be loved but by a person that takes up this God as a promising God. In other words, most of us only know God as a God who's dishing out commands all the time, do this and do that. And if that's your experience of God, then you also know if you don't do this, and if you did do that, then he's out to get you, punishment, penalty, and there's no way then that you can love him, you will only fear, from, fear him, you will only run away from him. Friends, do you know God as a commanding God or as a promising God? He does give commands to be sure, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but Paul's whole point is the prior and therefore defining principle about the way that God relates to us is that of promise, that of grace, that of unconditional love. You say, well, what's the difference experientially? You got to understand, what do you hear from God? A promising God sounds like this from God's heart, I will, I will. I will. A commanding God sounds like this You shall. You shall not. You shall. Which one is it for you? And when we say that God is a God of unconditional promise, what that means is that God abides by a love for us that has no ifs. We live in a world of ifs, don't we? Conditionality. I'll love you if you'll love me back. I'll love you if you continue to be useful to me. I'll help you if you'll help me. God's not like that. Praise God, God is not like that. From the beginning of time, he has always said, I'll love you even when you are unlovable. I'll help you because I know you are helpless. We live in a world of broken promises, so much so that I think it clouds our ability to receive this promising God. Maybe you're wounded this morning because of someone's unfaithfulness to you, God's mercy and kindness to you this morning, if that's your story. A friend, a spouse, a boss has let you down. A pastor, perhaps, let you down, even betrayed you or the government, the city hasn't come through with the assistance that they promised. Broken promises can hurt you. They can also harden you, make you more cynical towards life in the world. Pretty soon, you don't trust nobody, do you? We also live in a world of promises continually deferred. We're committal in other words, always trying not to have to make promises. Nobody these days wants to RSVP to anything, right? You coming? I don't know, I just wanna keep my options open, see if something better comes up. And you just might this morning be saying that about the party next weekend or about the girl you're dating. Can't commit, won't promise, won't give, because we know promises leave you vulnerable You're on the hook, you must come through. God always comes through. One of the Bible's favorite words for describing God's love is the Old Testament Hebrew word, hesed. It's often translated in our Bible's steadfast love or unfailing love. God's love is a loyal love, not just a sentimental love, not just a feeling love, though God certainly feels. It's a loyal love, a faithful love. Christian author Paul Miller has described it as a love with no exit strategy, a love that's not trying to bail out, a love that loves bailing in. Is that what you know of God? Is that what you've heard from God? Again, not primarily you shall and you shall not, a commanding God, but the God of a a sweet word of promising grace. A God who is committed to you such that he can't not do good to you. He, He can't not work all things together for your good and your glory. Even in your pains and in your trials, things that may not look like or feel like his love, God says even in those things, even that is my love because I can't break my promise. What does this look like to believe in a God of promise? Well, for one thing, as Corey Ten Boom says, when we're in times of pain, she wrote, she's a missionary, let God's promises shine on your problems. Let God's promises shine on your problems. In other words, even when it hurts or when life is confusing, do you hang on to the firm reality of God's promises as being the light that shines on your problems and helps you to make sense of what God is doing and why, rather than with the very understandable pain of our hearts making The light of our hurts shine itself over everything about what we know of God. What do you know of God's character? Have you studied his word so that you're drawing from these realities of who God is? Do you have a running catalog, perhaps, of the promises of God? Are you storing up in your heart the promises of God? scripture memory is increasingly becoming a lost art. Uh, We have coming up in, in several weeks our remembrance and day of prayer for the persecuted church, Christians who are in places, nations, and situations where, in many cases, they cannot have Bibles in places where they are restricted from publicly expressing their faith. I'm always humbled by how many of them Cling to, because it's all they have to cling to, the memorized word, the word of God stored up in their hearts when they're in prison, when they're in a detention camp, when they're in the presence of soldiers and officials who are quick to detain them if they would utter a word of worship and faith. Our lives are not like that, not legally here at least, but we're encouraged no less to store up our hearts, our consciousness, with all the promises of God. The promises of God need to define everything about who we are, even the gathering that we have in worship. It's one of the reasons why we start our service with a call to worship, a word from Scripture where God says, come. Why? Because it reminds us that God always has the first word when we get together, and it's always a word of kindness. Always a word of invitation. Always a word of grace to sinners. Come. This is God's idea. He always takes the first step towards us, even when we're running away. That's why we do a call to worship day after Sunday. God loves us with a a promising love. It's a unilateral love, not a quid pro quo, when you're useful to me, kind of counterfeit love. Which means when our hearts are changed by that love, then we're encouraged to love even those in our lives who can't repay us. Those who actually have little to benefit us. It's what pushes us out into the lives of other people. You love simply out of an overflow of love, and it all starts with a God of promise what defines your relationship with God and the gospel is not the promises that you make to God, but rather the promises that he makes and always keeps to you. The priority of the promise. Secondly, the lockup of the law will move quickly through this. So Paul made the case that God's way of relating to sinful people was established by a promise that his unconditional love came before the law that set the terms of the relationship but that then naturally raises the question that Paul raises in verse 19 well then why then was the law given at all why the commandments of god if grace and promise is the main defining thing what is the place of the you shalls and the you shall not because surely the bible is full of those The law, what was and is its role? And Paul says in the first part of verse 19, his provisional answer, it was added, the law, because of transgression, because of sin. So what does that mean? John Calvin in the 17th century so helpfully unpacked 16th century, unpacked this and explained that God gave his laws and his commands for several reasons very helpfully. Number one, he, he, he says that the, the law of God's his commands helps to restrain sin. Kind of, kind of like a harness. Uh, when God says don't murder, it puts it on our conscience that we should not hurt people no matter how much they hurt us. When God says, do not lie, it makes us remember that truth-telling is, generally speaking, at least the better way. It restrains sin in our hearts, in society as well. It's a good thing, this law. Secondly, Calvin points out that the law also shows us what love looks like. It not only restrains sin, it actually trumps sin by serving as a lamp of love. Well, how do I tell the truth? Well... Don't lie, tell the truth. Uh, How do I love my neighbor? Well, don't steal, give generously. Uh, The law of God shows us in greater detail exactly what love looks like in concrete terms. It's not only a harness, it's also a lamp, a light. But there's another purpose, and this is the big one that Paul highlights here in this text. And that's this, that the log, the commands of God, helps us to see our sin like a mirror. Because when God actually says, don't steal, suddenly you start to realize how hard it is not to steal. When God says, don't covet, suddenly you realize how hard it is not to be gazing over the fence or through your screen into the lives of your neighbors, wishing you had or were what they have and are. When God says, love your neighbor, it's then that you realize, gosh, it's really, really hard to love my neighbor as myself. As Paul puts it elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is what commentator John Stott says, explaining it like this. The purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift off man's respectability and to disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. The function of the law was not to bestow salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. We only know how bad the badness is because God spells out what the badness is and what the goodness ought to look like. That's why Paul uses all this, did you notice it, prison and bondage language? Verse 22, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. And again in verse 23, Paul writes, Before the coming of faith, we were, what, held in custody. You can almost picture the prison guard standing there over you. Held in custody under the law locked up. In other words, the commands of God help us to realize just how stuck we are in our slavery to our selfishness. Do you feel stuck today? It shows us how helpless we are to save ourselves. But notice the point of the law isn't just to leave us in jail, but rather to release us into the arms of Jesus. Look again at verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Why? So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And look again at verse 23. Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody, locked up under the law, locked up until, until what? The faith that was to come would be revealed. In other words, The law, the commands of God, those do's and don'ts, why are they there? They're there to drive us to Jesus. They're there to bring us to an end of ourselves. I can't love perfectly like I ought. Help me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. The point of the law is not to bring death and condemnation. The point is to bring life and justification in Jesus, you see, Paul is actually talking in terms about the history of the Old Testament and how the law of Moses came after the law. Uh, uh, sorry, the promise of Abraham in the Old Testament. A story of Israel is the way that he's telling this, but he's also clearly saying that what's true of Israel's story is true in principle of each of our personal stories. In other words, if grace is going to be sweet to you. You need to experience the discomfort and the bitterness of the law. If Jesus will be great to you, you need to be persuaded of the greatness of your sin. Do you understand, friends, how important it is for us to pay attention to the power of the law at work in our lives. Let me close by giving four quick, quick principles and practices I think that we can draw out from this. What difference does this make, this role of the law? Number one, we have to understand that commands themselves can't change a human heart. So the law is meant to humble us. It's meant to point us to Jesus. But the one thing it cannot do is to change our hearts. As Paul says in verse 21, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. See, rule keeping can never save us or give us spiritual life. It was never meant to. It can't do it. Rules and regulations by themselves can show us how sinful we are, but it can give us no moral power to actually overcome that sin. For that, you need the grace of God. You need the love of God changing you from within. And this is so relevant to our parenting for those who are parents, that barking commands to your children in and of itself might restrain behavior or redirect them, but what it cannot do is actually make them joyfully obedient to their parents or to their God. Only the gospel can do that. Only love can do that. Only conversation can do that. Only grace can do that. But guess what? It's not just for kids. It's in our own conflicts as well. Our normal habit is just to throw commands at each other and to expect the world to conform. It's actually the way that we normally approach even matters across society. Changes that we feel like we need to see in the world with respect to justice and righteousness, how often it is that people, even Christians, just so uh, uh, bank on the the rule of law to change society when what really you might have there is the restraint of sin, but no joy in righteousness. Because you have not changed the human heart. Commands can't change your heart. That's not the function of the law. But number two, here's a second practice in principle. Let the law lock you up. That sounds weird. Let the law lock you up. What I mean is this. Do you want Jesus to be sweet? Then you got to be honest about your sin. You got to let the law of God convict your heart. Not only that you did wrong, that you can't measure up, that you really are as selfish as advertised, but also that you can't clean yourself up, help yourself up, do yourself up in the eyes of God. We regularly minimize our sin. We make excuses, we defend ourselves, we start to redefine what it is that we did or what we think God and other people expect of us. We minimize our sin. What we don't realize is in doing so, we've also minimized our joy. We don't realize that we need to let God's law bring us to an end of ourselves. What sins are you most minimizing? It ain't that bad. What sins are you sort of ignoring, saying, well, I'm good over here, but that part of what God expects of me, well, that's not, that's secondary. What do you need to return to, to stare at in the face, in the mirror, to fall to your knees and say, I can't. I'm a sinner, desperate for the grace of God. That can be painful, but dear friends, the whole point of this is bring you to the release and the relief and the rejoicing of Jesus. It's part of the reason why it's important for us to learn how to confess our sins in a gospel-shaped manner, to be honest with God, but then to be restored in hope in the gospel. It's why we're doing this more now in the course of our worship service as a way also to encourage you to do the same thing in your private lives as well. Maybe some of you need to actually cut out that confession section of our bulletins each week and put it on your mirror or in your briefcase or in your back pocket so that you know that God actually invites you to be honest, that you can live a life of greater integrity, not faking it all the time. And yet, importantly, the whole point of that is to drive you to Jesus. God doesn't want you just to be left in your misery. He wants to turn your mourning into dancing. And so listen to that assurance of pardon. Listen to his promise, again, of forgiveness. Receive that. That's the climax of confession. God doesn't want you to dump your sins and then to walk away in misery and condemnation and guilt. He wants you to soar because of the grace of the gospel. Drink deeply from the fountain of life, from the rivers of his grace. Let Jesus sing over your hearts. A couple summers ago, I was back in California at home where I grew up out in the desert, and it was a fun little trip taking our kids outside after it had gotten dark at night and they looked up and they saw stars, which of course, growing up here in a city-like region, it's hard to see except for maybe a few of the brightest stars. They looked up and they saw stars like they had never seen them before. Being out there in the desert where I grew up, where there isn't a lot of ambient light to muffle up the light. And they said, Daddy, are they always up there like that? And they are. You just can't see them. Why? Because the darkness here isn't dark enough. You see, only when you let the darkness get dark does the light become bright. And it's only against the backdrop of our sin that the gospel becomes the power that it truly is. It's only when you see the darkness in your own light, that life that you get hungry for the light of Jesus. That you come crawling to him and where you feel him almost literally picking you up off your feet. Out of your helplessness and into his help, into his ever. Lasting arms. And so the law invites us to then run to Jesus, to run to him, to see his love. As Elise Fitzpatrick, a dear sister and author, has written, we need those days of failure because they help humble us and through them we can see how God's grace is poured out on us, the humble. Friends, some of us don't know the fresh joy of of Jesus because we have cut off from our souls the experience of conviction of sin. If you are not regularly in the holy habit of humbling yourself to God and bringing your sin before Him in honesty, that's just what confession is. You cannot be renewed in the love and the joy of the gospel day in and day out. The promise of God is that he will always meet you with grace. And so we come full circle. The promise of God is that you will never come before him with that honesty and be slapped in the face or be mocked or to see God walk away or even run away from the hideous sight of your sin. No, here's a God who has seen it all, who loves you in it all, a God of grace, a God of promise. Do you know this God? What's the God that you are coming to know? Behold, dear friends, the God of promise. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would come and show us, give us grace in a way that erupts in our hearts new joy, being confronted with our sin, seeing Jesus afresh and anew. Give us grace. We need to see you as the promising God of grace that you truly are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing this song. Take my life. Take my life
3: back. i and let